All right, if you would, turn in your Bibles to John chapter 17. Uh, this morning we're going to be looking at Jesus' high priestly prayer. And easily we could have turned this into a series of sermons uh, about each of the parts, but we, uh, I wanted to make sure that we could, we could uh, hear the fullness of the passion of Christ. So we're going to look at the prayer in whole this morning. One thing to note, if you do any kind of reading at all, there, there are some scholars who suggest that this, this really shouldn't be called the high priestly prayer. I, I'm not going to take a huge charge with them, but, but based on the content of the prayer, what Jesus says, I don't know of any more priestly thing that could be said. For him to ultimately say, as we're going to see in just a few moments, that, Lord, your, your, your hour has come. Would you glorify me, which means crucify me. May this cup, may your will be done, though this cup, I would like for it to pass from me. May what the shame that is set before me, I would rather have the joy that will come from my crucifixion than to let it go by. That's priestly. For him to say, Lord, would you, would you protect the disciples who will remain in the world but not, but not be of the world? Would you, would you protect them and sanctify them with your word and with the Holy Spirit that I have just promised to them just a couple of chapters ago? That's, that's priestly. For him to say, would you, would you hold your church together? Would you help them to see that what I have done in and through you and what you've done in and through me and what the Spirit is doing in their midst, that that should hold them together for the sake of mission? Is that not priestly language? I think it is because he's the guy who's, once he ascends to heaven, going to continue to intercede on our behalf as he is doing even right now. Take heart. Right now, the Lord is praying for us as we meet together. Our Lord Jesus Christ is praying that we would remain unified, that the snake would not slither into this garden and whisper low, did God really mean that? And so I argue high priestly prayer is, I don't know what else you could call it. That's exactly what it seems to be to me. Now, we also would have benefited from if we had started this series sooner from beginning at chapter 13 and seeing all that Christ had to say to his disciples as the hour that the Lord had appointed was drawing near to him. He says the amazing stuff that he says in 13 where he he washes their feet and says, if you won't let me do this to you, you have no part with me. And if you don't do this for others, you don't understand who I am. And then he, then he tells them that, that they're going to be an example to the whole world, that the great commandment should be fulfilled in them, how they love each other should be visible to the world. But what will happen is that the world will rise up in great anger at their love and seek to destroy them. And he says those beautiful words, but take heart, for I have overcome the world. And so it is after he says all those wonderful things that he now turns to God the Father in this prayer. And it's an amazing thing for us to see as he is on the verge of entering into Gethsemane where he will, you got to understand this, he will begin to be mistreated as no human being ought ever be treated. Think about what he's on the eve of. And yet he takes time to pray, not, not just for himself, but that the Lord would be glorified, that his disciples would be protected, and that the church would mean something even now. And that the mission of God is the thread through all of that, and there is a great connectivity to what we will hear today in the Abrahamic covenant. That the mission of God continues because of what Christ has done. And so we get a wonderful insight that only the Gospel of John gives us 
This probably was prayed after the Passover meal had been done and they're getting ready to depart for the garden. And so I ask you, based on Christ's example, what do you do consistently on the eve of major events? Major life events, major family events. How, how many times, not, not to beat any of us up, I'm just revealing my own sin. How many times have you thought, man, I should have prayed for that. I, I should have prayed with that person before they departed. Um, and I'll confess one to you right now. My, my daughter is in the air headed to Cancun. I should have prayed with her last night, but <laughs> it was interesting when she was leaving. Nothing bad, but she was just all worked up and we were just like, okay, get the tornado down the road. Um, but we should have prayed for the tornado. Prayed with the tornado. And I didn't. And I, I, regret, I woke up this morning regretting it, feeling like I, not that Jesus doesn't love me, but that I missed an opportunity. So what do we do on the verge of things that, that we, how are we teaching our children that prayer is important and evidencing that, that dependency upon the Lord is critical? Because if Jesus needed to do it, I don't know, what might we need to do? <laughs> Even more. We, we need to be people of prayer. And so Jesus is showing us that he, he is dependent upon the Lord. He turns to the Lord in his darkest hour, and so should we. D.A. Carson has a great quote here. He says, That's God, That God's appointed hour has arrived does not strike Jesus as an excuse for resigned fatalism. So it's not that Jesus goes, okay, well, it's here. So uh, I guess I better do some stretches. Got to carry the cross, get my calisthenics, get loose, get warmed up. No, it's not what Jesus, Jesus is not resigned to what's about to happen in a fatalistic way. He actually is receiving it as gift. Notice what else D.A. Carson says. He says that God's appointed hour has arrived does not strike Jesus as an excuse for resigned fatalism, but for prayer. Precisely because the hour has come for the Son to be glorified, he prays that the glorification might take place. This is God's appointed hour. Let God's will be done. Indeed, Jesus prays that his Father will accomplish the purpose of this appointed hour. And this sentence is critical. As so often in Scripture, emphasis on God's sovereignty functions as an incentive to prayer not a disincentive. Did you hear that? Because I think some of us have argued quite the opposite. God's, God knows what's going to happen. When I, when I need to talk to him. He's going to do what he wants to do. That's resigned fatalism. That is not what Jesus shows us, in whose image we are being transformed, amen. And so we too, though we may say, look, God's going to do what he's going to do, but here's the good news of that. God is good. Remember all that is stated from God's own mouth in Exodus 34 when he says, I am loving, I am long-suffering, I am kind, I am forgiving to thousands, and yet I am just. So when God says he purposes to do something, it is the greatest good, which is an occasion for us to draw near to him and say, Lord, I'm not sure I understand what you're doing right now with my life, or in my family, or with my children. But I know that you're good, and I trust you. So I, I'm just asking for a glimpse, or for the Spirit. You, you know you can be honest with him, right? Because he already knows. 
You don't need to not talk to him because he already knows. You need to talk to him because, in fact, he does know and does understand and can provide what it is that you need in a time of trouble. But so often, which way do we run? Away. We use our theology upside down and say, well, you know, I don't need, I don't, that's, that's all the reason why I don't need to pray. Listen at what Carson says. Look at what, even more important, look at what Jesus is doing. Why would he need to pray? He's the God man. Great question. And all the more why you need to pray, you who are all man or human. Because if the God man needed to, you need to. Well, let's look at what he says. Let's look at this first part as he prays for glory and death and resurrection in verses one through five. Hear God's word again this morning. When Jesus had spoken these words, meaning chapters 13 through 16, I would encourage you, go back and read them. As you meditate on this later this week or today or tomorrow, read those words. There's such gravity in them. When Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your son that the son may glorify you since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. And this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you, have, that you gave me to, to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. So notice, again, we, we went through the Lord's Prayer back in the summer and learned a whole lot about prayer. And, and Jesus doesn't d- divorce from that. Notice where he starts. He turns to the Father first. His greatest concern is the glory of the Father. And so he is willing, even though he knows what is coming, so much so that in the, in the, in the Gospel of Luke, he sweats drops of blood in the Garden of Gethsemane as he is bearing the burden and the weight and begs for the Lord to be, if there be any other way. But not my will, but your will be done. Notice he starts here with God's glory and our prayers should too. That should be our greatest concern is the glory of the Lord instead of our glory. We are in a glory war, are we not? We are always trying to grab it for ourselves. We struggle so deeply with significance. I am included, by the way. We struggle with a want to be known for something that is good and to be the best at something, to to somehow make our mark upon history. And yet, and yet, we fail and we fail and we fail or somebody better just comes along. And that is God's grace to show us you can't do this. So your glory should never be first. All of our prayers should begin with a genuine at least cry. Even if we struggle to feel it and desire it, we should at least confess that that is what is best for us. And Jesus does that. He begins with the word Father. He's being intimate here. This is someone that he's close to and that he loves and this is, a, this is a difficult moment. The hour has come and he desires to be restored again to his father. Look at what he prays for. He says, look, let, let the hour come. 
May it come all the quicker so that I can rise from the dead and be with you, be at your right hand again. If Jesus, in whose image we're being created, desires to be with his Father that much, how much more should you and I? Remember the point of the story. This, we have to remember this. We have to go over this again and again and again because we, we're so quick to forget that the point of the story is that we, the ones created in the image of God, would be restored to the presence of God unfettered without there being any barrier at all so we could take the deepest of joy in him. And yet, we forget, don't we? And that's all Christ wants. That's where he starts he just wants to see his father glorified even in his crushing death. And so he cries out for glory, a glory that is, that is actually going to come through his breaking. And so after he says, Father, he, he continues on. He says, the hour has come recognizing that this is God's appointed hour, that God is sovereign, that God has foreordained this. It's from God's hand, and that's why he can pray, because he knows that it's good even though it is difficult. He says, glorify your son that the son may glorify you, since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life. Again, he's making a statement of divinity, as is the case all throughout John. Again and again and again, John is arguing, you are looking at the God man. The charge that the Jews put over him is true, actually. He does claim to be God. Remember how upset they got when he forgave sins. Who are you to forgive sins? Only God can forgive sins. For our brothers and sisters or our, those who want to be our brothers and sisters who claim, that, no, 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 no. No, he's, he's, he's just a son of God. He's not the son of God. <laughs> you gotta rip John completely out of your, you gotta rip a whole bunch of stuff out of your Bible, but that for sure you gotta set fire to in toto. And for us who fail to remember, no, he is, he is God. Again, your ability to understand that and work that out mathematically is not what's important. It's your ability to walk in its newness and resurrected lifeness. The fact that he can forgive you. What he did is a completed work. You may say, I don't struggle with that. Yes, you do. Let me tell you why. How many of you feel guilty about anything? Then you're struggling with it. You're struggling with whether or not God is, Jesus is who he says he is. You are struggling with whether or not Jesus was in fact God and his work was in fact finished. And guess what? We will struggle until he glorifies us and the struggle ends. But the good news is he promised he would end it. Not in judgment for the sons and daughters, but in glory. Amen? And so we all struggle with this theological thing. For those of you who are like, I don't want to do any theology, you're doing it every day. You do it every second of every day, actually. You're always doing theology. You just aren't flashing the big terms to impress anybody, which is cool. Uh, you don't need to do that. But just know that you are. This, this matters. This is why John was so adamant that we would understand that Jesus is God and God. And Jesus is declaring, you have given me the ability to grant eternal life. Who can do that but God? And notice what he says is eternal life. This is critical. Let's do some theology. What does he say is eternal life? He says, and this is eternal life, that they know you. So it's that easy, right? You just got to know some stuff about God. 
Get your propositional truth in order and you're, you're, you're golden. Well, that's to fail to understand what the word know means here. To know in this case means and indicates a covenantal, intimate, deep relationship. It means to have an understanding of that other person in a way that is nigh unto marriage. That's why it says in some of those books that we don't like to preach in front of children, to know one another means something more than just, hey, my name is. And so to know God here is to have an intimate, to understand all the things that he confessed in Exodus 34. To, under, to have an understanding of the purpose of redemption. To understand, and notice it goes on to say, and that they would know me as well. Jesus, that is. And so to know God is to know Jesus is to know that you are beloved in a very intimate and covenantal and deep way. So to have eternal life, you must be in relationship with God. And you can only be in relationship with God through Jesus Christ. There is no other way. All roads do not lead to the same place. I, as a radical anti-theist, have studied the world religions to come up with my own smorgasbord of my own religion to make everyone angry because that's what I'm good at. And my wife can tell you, my whole thing was, I just, how many people can I anger with my belief system? I did pretty good. Her most of all. Her favorite stuff was when I was a Zen Christian. And I would say, what is the sound of one hand clapping? And she would say, that's the dumbest thing I've ever heard. And that's, I said, that's why I put my shoes on my head and I walk out the door. Okay, all right, yeah, that's, that's helpful. That'll, that'll, that'll take you far in life, kids. Um, so, so, just, 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 so it's important that we know Jesus and recognize that it is utterly unique. He is utterly unique. This promise of salvation is utterly unique in all of the history of the world religions. And so he's saying, if you want eternal life, you must be in relationship with God. You must be in relationship with me to be in relationship with God. And he goes on to confess that he has completed what the Lord gave him to do. Now, you may say, well, not yet he hadn't. Well, yeah, but I mean, he is the down payment. So what he's saying here is that his intention is to finish that which has been started, that he had perfectly kept the old covenant and that facilitates and allows him to apply that to us. What's new about the new covenant? What's new is that a, a, a living human being kept it start to finish. That's what's new about the new covenant. And guess what else is new? It gets applied to you in him alone. That's what's new about the new covenant because no other human being can keep it. No other human being can make the promises true. Have you been a blessing to the nations? Not by yourself you have it. Not by yourself you have it. So here he's saying, I have finished what you've given me and now he wants to be restored to God the Father. He's saying that which I will, will be emptied out in the crucifixion that which I will lose in, in taking on your wrath, that which will cut me off from you, let it be restored and I rise from the dead. It's very important that we understand the only thing that could glorify God is the utter eradication of sin and death. It's the only true thing that can glorify one who created the universe. There is no other thing that could glorify him. And that means if it's eradicated, then the sons and the daughters now can come boldly before the throne of grace. Now, and in eternity. Amen?
So hear what John Calvin says about this prayer. He says, this prayer of Christ is a safe harbor. You hear that? This, this prayer, it's a safe harbor. And whoever retreats into it is safe from all danger of shipwreck. For it is as if Christ had solemnly sworn that he will devote his care and diligence to our salvation. I only have one truck with Calvin and what he just said. It is not as if it is. And that may be a language thing because I don't think Calvin would say as if, meaning it the way I just said it. But the truth is this prayer is a safe harbor because Christ has done what he promised to do and applies it to all of us who are sons and daughters. Those of us who have eternal life. And remember, he takes no pleasure in the death of the wicked. So don't hear that as ha ha ha, there's those of us who are in and those of you who are out. No, we don't celebrate that. Along with Spurgeon, we should always have tears in our eyes at the thought that anyone could perish. So let me ask you a 101 question for Presbyterians. What is the chief end of man? Glorify God and enjoy him forever. Glorify God and enjoy him forever. Okay, that's awesome. How are you going to do that, by the way? There's a big gap between that statement and the truth, except there's something that crosses the gap. What is it? Christ alone, through faith alone, by God's grace alone, is the means by which you can glorify God and enjoy him forever. I kind of like the way the Heidelberg Catechism starts a little better, to be honest with you, because it starts with Christ. And it tells us, what is your only hope in life and death? Christ alone. You can't glorify him. You can't do question one from the Shorter Catechism until you can actually, you can't do that question until all of that other stuff's been done. Amen? So remember that, that while your charge is seemingly and is big, glorify God and enjoy him forever. Christ has provided all that is necessary for you to actually be able to do that. Amen? So look now, when he prays for his disciples, he's gonna pray for the sanctification and protection of the disciples on their mission. This is a longer part of the prayer. We won't spend as much time on it, but do, do give your attention to the reading of the word. I have manifested your, being God's name, to the people whom you gave me out of the world. Yours they were, and you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. Now they know that everything that you have given me is from you. For I have given them the words that you gave me and they have received them and have come to know in truth that I came from you and they have believed that you sent me. I am praying for them. I'm not praying for the world, but for those whom you have given me, for they are yours. All mine are yours and yours are mine and I am glorified in them. And I am no longer in the world, but they are in the world. And I am coming to you, Holy Father, Keep them in your name, which you have given me, that they may be one, even as we are one. While I was with you, uh, I'm sorry, while I was with them, I kept them in your name, which you have given me. I have guarded them, and not one of them has been lost, except the son of destruction, that the scripture might be fulfilled. But now I am coming to you, and these things I speak in the world, that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves." I have given them your word and the world has hated them because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. 
sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. And for their sake, I consecrate myself that they also may be sanctified in truth. Now it transitions from calling for the glory of God to take a tender moment to pray for those who are closest to him, the disciples, because he knows what's coming, right? He's already told them, and he did it in the form of prophecy. He said, the shepherd must be struck. And then what must happen? The sheep must be scattered. Scattered how? Gently? No, violently. These men will lose their lives. Some more horrible than others. Um, And he knows that. And yet he prays for them to finish what the Lord had given them to complete, the mission. And that mission was to glorify God through Jesus Christ. And that mission was to be founded solely upon one thing. What is it? God's word. Now, that is exactly why we as a church fight so hard to make sure that our worship services are saturated with the word that we in our counsel and the things that we do, we turn again and again and again to the word. If it was important for them, it's important for us. And notice that Christ mentions no other thing as the means by which they will be protected and sanctified. Because where's God's name proclaimed? His word. He says, you've given me your name, I've given it to them. You've also given me your word and I've given it to them. This is why we are so word-centered, ordinary means of grace. This is why we put so much effort into our liturgy. This is why I bristle when some of you say, well, you know, our liturgy, it's not very high. What, what, what do you mean by that? Is that a statement of effort or is it just because we don't have an organ which came into being not when Paul was preaching, by the way? Our instruments may actually be closer to that which are in the Psalms. So this is, this is why we are who we are and we are shaped by what we are shaped by alone. And we're uninterested in so many of the other trappings that churches can get caught up in. This is why we long for you to be shaped by the word. This is why we want to be able to worship in spirit and truth. Where would we get the truth from? God's word. This is why this is so important to us because it was important to Jesus and it was important to the disciples. Notice what else he says. He doesn't say take them out of the world. He doesn't say retreat to your fortress on a hill. Make sure they don't hang out with any gays. Make sure they don't hang out with any prostitutes. Make sure they don't ever, ever drink in public. Now, am I conflating some things? No, what I'm telling you is this, is they are to be in the world, but not of the world. Same thing Paul says in 1 Corinthians 5, when he is actually correcting something that is wrong within the church. He's saying, you're you're hanging out with Christians, those who ought to know better, acting a straight fool. But you need to be hanging out with the world because they're acting a straight fool is at least honest. And so we are not to be withdrawn or in a fortress. And let me tell you something where this happens, and we struggle with it too. Parents, listen to me. If you try to protect your children from the fall that is within them, you will destroy them. 
You will create a Christianity from which they cannot actually do what it is they were called to do. Don't let your idols of safety and security keep you from doing and encouraging exactly that which Jesus desired for you and them and the disciples. Now, are, am I suggesting that you, well, it's fine, okay, spend the night with whoever you want to? No, that's why wisdom is there. Use wisdom. Your children are not missionaries to be sent out until they've been equipped. But you cannot keep them in toto from the world. And to do so is to cripple them in the mission. Does that make sense? Now, that's a much bigger conversation that we probably need to have on an individual basis or even in some seminar type stuff. But my point is, don't go against what the actual mission is. And you may say, well, he's just talking about the disciples. No, who was Paul talking about in 1 Corinthians 5? Who's he fixing to talk about here at the end of this prayer? It's all of us. Now, be careful if you're going to be in the world that you don't become like the world, which is why you've got to stay in community and continue to worship. This is why it's so important for us to give our kids something that they can hang on to. This is also why if we've given them a bad bill of goods, they flee the church when they get old enough because we lied to them. And they don't want to be a part of a silly mission. So... Here, Christ is praying that they would remain on mission, that they would remain unified on that mission. Now, there's one, there's an example in the middle of this that shows us the cost of disunity. It's Judas. He's the son of destruction. I don't have a lot of time to unpack this, but he does what he does according to the word. Psalm 41.9 says exactly what Judas would do. He, he will dip in the bread and be the one that seeks to break his friend. Now, you may say, well, what? what? How do I explain that? Well, the good news of that is that because it was foretold in the word, it means that Christ was not responsible. It's not that Christ did anything wrong to cause Judas to fall away. His falling away was known. It was sovereign. You may say, well, that brings up a host of issues. Yeah, it does. And we're not going to answer them in this short period of time. But what it does show is that even the evil in man's heart can be transformed and used for God's good. And that Jesus is not responsible for those who don't receive. His work is completed. It's finished. It can be trusted. If you would, hear what good Dutch theologian Herman Ritterboss says about this. Hang with the quote because he's kind of long-winded on the front sentence, but it's the last part that's most important to us. He says, With as you sent me into the world, Jesus appeals to the agreement of the mandate he has given his disciples with his own mission from the Father and to the fact that their mission is based on his own and therefore serve to, serves to continue the Father's work. The content and purpose of the disciples' consecration are thus placed in a clear perspective. They do not consecrate themselves to service for God away from the world. See, you, you don't become more holy by removing yourself from the world. That's not how you become more holy. If you want to grow in holiness, do what God does. You want to grow in holiness, get around some sinners and test your theology. Go deep into the darkness where God is, Isaiah 58. Feed the hungry, clothe the naked, visit those who are in prison, as Jesus would say you 
have done to the least of these, you have done it unto him. You want to grow in holiness? Go deep into the darkness that is in the world and let your light shine. Engage those who so desperately need this gospel. Don't sit around and talk about everything that's wrong with politics and Facebook and social media and television shows. Don't let that be the lion's share of who and what you are. Don't sit around and pontificate about what happened in eternity past where it's not even written of. How would you even talk about it? Who cares how many angels can dance on the head of a pin? I know one who was broken on the cross and rose from the dead. That is far more important. Become conversive with the story so that as you go into the world, you've got something good to offer. Not just fire insurance and fear, but newness of life and resurrection. And then he goes on to say, but rather... They consecrate themselves in the act of entering into the world. Now, I know that's dangerous, but it's far more dangerous for you not to, actually. And the reason that it's dangerous to enter into the world is because you could become more like the world, which is warned, right? Well, this is why we need fellowship. This is why we need worship. This is why we need brothers and sisters around us to say, hey, you're starting to, you don't stink of Jesus as much as you stink of the world right now. We need people that actually know us. Isn't this part of our categorical problem is no one knows us. We smile and we do all the things that we do to make people think everything is okay all the while. We are aching inside for someone to apply the balm of Gilead. We're so worried about what people would think if they really knew us. No, it actually may help the stuff that they're making up about you. It may actually help them realize, no, you're not that bad. Or they may find out, no, you're worse than I thought. And, in the, and then see that Jesus said, but I love you all. So don't think that the world is the problem. No, the world is the mission. So what empowers us to be able to be in the world, but not of the world for the life of the world? The finished work and person of Jesus Christ. The power of the Holy Spirit, the word, helps to correct us when we get sideways. Take heart and fear not, dear saint. You have been given all that is necessary to risk everything because you've already been given everything. And really, it's not even a risk because it can't be taken from you. That which is firmly in the hand of Christ can be pried out by whom? No one. Most of all, this world. Most of all, Satan. Let's look at the end of the prayer. Verses 20 through 26. <laughs> I do not ask for these only, meaning the disciples, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. Um, I just got lost, actually. There are, the glory that you have given me, I have given to them that they may be one even as we are one. I in them and you and me that they may become perfectly one so that the world may, may know that you loved me. Father, I desire that they also whom you have given me may be with me where I am 
to see my glory that you have given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. Oh, righteous Father, even though the world does not know you, I know you, and these know that you have sent me. I made known to them your name, and I will continue to make it known that the love with which you have loved me may be in them and I in them. So what Jesus is saying here is that what the disciples will do will bear fruit, that they're going into the world will actually create a church. And he's praying there for us now. And notice what he is most concerned about. Notice what it is that he actually dies for. What is it? U-N-I-T-Y. Unity. He actually dies so that we would be unified together. Now answer me this. Why do we give it up so easily? That which Christ died for, we will quickly jettison for no reason at all. We would break fellowship with one another because there's plenty of other fellowships in this town, right? Consumerism. We would deny that which Christ died for, that which actually helps the mission. So hear me. When you talk about things, and I don't suspect there's anything going on, by the way, so don't read my passion as more than that. Let me just give that little footnote. (laughs) But when you go around saying things about your fellow brothers and sisters to your neighbors, know that what you're doing is contra the mission. You are destroying any reason anyone would ever want to come here. And that is not what your mission is to be in Christ. When you talk about things that go on or people at this church in front of your children, whether you're aware of it or not, they hear And guess what? It is all the ammunition they need to flee this place as soon as they can because the stench of hypocrisy is more than they can bear. Now let me tell you a story. It's mine. I did this. We talked about things in front of our kids where our kids could hear that we never should have. And I am reaping what I have sown this day. And it is in sorrow. My daughter has such a hard view of the church. She's so hard on Christians because I was. And I failed in that moment. But Jesus is eternal and I have hope. I have hope that is far beyond my failing. I also experienced this in terms of being at a church where the first Sunday I went, many of you may be having this experience right now, I thought, the pastor's crazy. I don't want to be under that guy. <clears throat> I told Susan, I said, I'm not coming back to this church. That guy's a ticking time bomb. And so Susan, who's very patient, as you might would recognize she needs to be, uh, in order for this to work, uh, she was like, oh, okay, all right. Well, she let the Lord do what the Lord always does. I'll never forget, I was in the Sunday school hall, getting ready to walk into the Sunday school class that I'd come back the next week. And the Lord very clearly said, I didn't hear a voice, I don't need medication, but I just felt him say, um, if you run now, you will run forever. Because there is no perfect church. And I said, all right, well, and, and for some reason, I think I can bargain with God. I said, all right, God, if, if I'm here, I need a friend. I need someone to yoke myself to. So I walked in the classroom, sat down, and there was this guy there named Lee White who 
was talking all this crazy stuff from the Old Testament, and I was checking him out. I was making, he, he's right, he's landing on stuff. And so I walked up to him. I said, Lee, I know you don't know me, but you and I need to become friends if I'm going to make it here. He said, all right, well, that's fine. And it was interesting because Lee and I met for two or three years. He, he was the Paul, I was the Timothy, and we just talked about Scripture. Well, unfortunately, a situation arose where he was, um, he was removed in a very um, awful way. It was one of the darkest moments I've seen in church. And the Lord still said, if you run now, you'll keep running. And we stayed, and I can tell you that it, it, it shaped me more than anything else that I have ever done in my Christian walk. It made me actually love the church in a way that, that I, I, could, I couldn't do this if not for that. Because you got to remember, I was like you. I was just a parishioner. I was a, a guy with an opinion, lots of them. I never made it here. I'd have never loved the church enough to get up and do this, this bone grinding mill that we call ministry. And to try to herd cats with a hula hoop as sometimes it's called. And, and so, so, so the Lord is so gracious. We have to remember that. And now, now listen, for those of you thinking, Cameron, you're just hedging your bets. You're trying to make sure we, keep, we just stick around here and keep tithing. No, no, no. You heard me say a few weeks ago, and I meant it. If you cannot flourish and worship at this church, you gotta go for your own good, for your own family's good, because you will sink into exactly what we just talked about and it will ruin your heart for the church, your children's heart for the church, and your neighbor's heart for the church. So if, if for some reason you, you, it, ain't, it ain't turning the crank here, I will help you find somewhere to go because my greater concern is that you would be able to do it in a way that is honoring unto the Lord. And so honesty is a great thing and we're family. And we're, we're family even when you're at another church. But remember, Christ died for the unity, the sake of the church, for the sake of the mission. Do not be so casual with it. Be very careful with what you say. Practice Matthew 18, which we'll go through in the summer. We're actually gonna preach through Matthew 18 just so we understand as a church, how do we do this? It's interesting to me. I, rarely do people actually practice it. And all I ever hear are excuses why they can't actually do what the word says. I'm astonished at that. So Christ who died to make sure you could do all these things, you, you can't. Okay, all right. In your own strength, okay. We get what we get in that regard. So listen to what Andres Kostenberger says about this. He says, Jesus' concern for the followers' unity is the greatest burden as his earthly mission draws to a close. Did you hear that? And it pervades this entire section. Their unity in turn is to be rooted in Jesus' own unity with the Father. Together with love, unity constitutes a vital prerequisite for their mission. Importantly, this unity is not merely a unity of love. It is predicated upon the acceptance and transmission of the revelation imparted to the disciples by the Father through the Son. It means the continuing work of the church is critical. Notice, Christ promised, I will keep this before the world. How? My bride, the church. Yes, the bride is ugly sometimes, but she's still our mother. She is still the bride. We must love her. And we must care enough about her to tell each other the truth to build her up instead of constantly seeking to tear her down, even unwittingly. It's actually rare, let me say this, it's actually rare that I actually meet what I feel like is a legitimate wolf. Someone who intentionally wants to tear the church apart. More often than not, I meet passive wolves. Those who have not recognized that their teeth have grown sharp. 
and their bite devastating. Be careful. Be careful that you are doing the work of the gospel in and of yourself so that you will be part of what Christ died for, not part of what he didn't even want to pray for. Remember, he said, I don't pray for the world. I don't pray for that which is against you. I only pray for that which is redeemed out of it. I'm going to judge that which is against you. Don't be part of what will be judged. So what is the foundation and means of our unity? How in the world could we, this disparate group of people, right? We're not all the same, are we? Would you suggest that we are? No, we're a very different crowd, even though we kind of have a similar shade going on. We're still very different culturally, socioeconomically, how we parent, what we think about public school, what we think about private school, what we think about homeschool, what we think about politics. We're different. We really are. We try to keep it quiet, but we're different. And so this isn't a call for us to be uniform. No, it's to actually be able to celebrate our unity. So given our differences, how in the world could we ever have unity? Because of what Christ has done in Christ alone, by faith alone, through grace alone. So what was the cost that was paid to make this unity in the church possible? Christ was broken. You need to understand that. The cost was great. What purpose does our unity serve? It serves as to whether or not anyone else cares at all about the church, what the world thinks of the church, what your neighbors think of the church. It matters significantly for the mission. Be careful what you say and do. Some of you don't even know some of the stuff that gets heard that gets back around, actually. Where some random person says, oh yeah, you go to Christ community? Man, that pastor's a real jerk. I'm like, eh, I'm the pastor. That hadn't happened, by the way. I'm just messing with <laughs> I don't want it to either, so there's that. So what do we learn from Jesus' high priestly prayer? One, that Jesus embraces the cross, despising the shame for the joy of God being glorified in the redemption of his sons and daughters to eternal life. Jesus grabs hold of in full the glory that will come through his brokenness, his death. Second, that Jesus wants the disciples to have the same joy in seeing people redeemed through their mission in the world. And from the rest of the Bible that we read, they get to see that. Think of Peter. How crazy is Acts chapter 10 that we heard from last week? How crazy is it that he gets to see a Gentile family like the Spirit falls on him? He gets to witness that. How crazy is it that Paul gets to see these, these crazy pagan charismatics in Corinth come to the Lord? How crazy that he then gets to see even Titus and these others minister to Cretans, if you know what that means. How crazy is it that we're in? We are redeemed. We who are so sinful and broken and easily led astray. Last thing that we learn is that Jesus desires that the church to be is unified in and through his redemptive work for the sake of the continued mission in the world. This matters significantly. And this is what we will fight for. This is what we will preach toward. This is what we will, everything that we are, we want to go toward this and nothing more because Jesus didn't die for anything more. He died for this. Now, 
knowing that he loves us and that he's provided everything we need. None of this land on you too heavy. If you are in any way, shape, or form guilty of any of this, know this. You still have breath in your lungs, which means that you can be forgiven. Know that no matter what you've done, said, you have the privilege of being able to repent and pray, not only for forgiveness, but the application of forgiveness that may already be yours if you are in Christ. Know that what you've done has not had the final say. If you know anything about church history, there is nothing any one of us could do to lay the ax to the root of the tree to stop the going forward of the, of the word of God. If you read anything about church history in the 12th and 13th century, if it can survive that, it can survive whoever's coming into office in November. Amen? So, take heart. The high priest has prayed for you, and he continues to do so. Now let's turn to him now and pray. Father, thank you for Jesus. Thank you for the high priest. Thank you for his heart. Thank you that we get to see it. Thank you that he was more concerned with your glory than he was for himself, his own humanity. Thank you that he understood that you were good and that he was willing to suffer what he suffered because he knew he would rise again victorious. Thank you that he then applies that victory to his disciples who apply it to us. Thank you for your word which screams of redemption from start to finish. Thank you that we have a high priest who can be and do all that Christ has done so that we could be and do all that you created us to be and do. We pray that we would fight for unity given that he gave his life for it. Not a false unity, but a unity around mission, a unity around the person and work of Jesus Christ, a unity around the reality that we are saved to you, not from you. A unity around the work of the Spirit in our midst. God, I pray that you would allow your church to continue, that you would continue to be faithful to the promise that Christ said he would keep it before the world. Help us to know what it looks like to be in the world but not of the world. That's a big topic. Help us as parents love our kids well and not turn them into idols for destruction. Help us love each other well so that the world would smell the aroma of the gospel. In Christ's name, amen.